Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel. Honestly, you don't want to be taking generic legal advice from a YouTube channel or podcast in any event. On with the show. Unforced Error, a lawyer's view on the ESA's doxing of 2,000-plus E3 attendees. Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing partner of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we've got a doozy of an episode because there was a doozy of a news story that came out yesterday, late yesterday, about how the Entertainment Software Association, the trade association that represents and lobbies for the video game industry on the whole and has membership of some of the biggest companies in the video game industry, through its E3 website, managed to reveal the personal information of virtually every journalist and journalist-adjacent person that attended E3 in 2019. Now, if you're seeing a few different things on the way that I'm recording this video, it's because, as you can probably see at the top of your screen, I have so many tabs open and ready to talk about that my usual program for uh, switching between tabs and recording them for your viewing pleasure uh, wasn't working. It was throwing up on me. So we're going to actually record my whole screen, uh, but uh, hopefully that doesn't change much. Uh, the second thing I wanted to say in terms of disclaimers is that the person that actually uh, broke this story yesterday, uh, Sophia Narwitz, uh, did in fact contact me uh, earlier in the day yesterday. Uh, she references in her video here uh, that she talked to a lawyer, uh, and uh, that's me. Uh, she talked to me uh, before she uh, published any of this information to try to make sure uh, that she understood the lay of the land for the privacy laws and some of the things that we're going to talk to you uh, about in this episode. Um, but I'm seeing in a number of places online that she is getting flack for the fact that this list that she discovered on the E3 website, and we're going to talk about the details in just a second, wound up getting disseminated to some of the dark corners of the web. And I would just want to tell you at the, at the outset, one, I was contacted about this story slightly before it came out uh, in order to give that source background, not legal advice, but just background like I give to other journalists. Uh, and that I know for a fact in those communications, uh, she was taking uh, all reasonable steps to try to make sure that the website was pulled down uh, from the ESA and E3 website before she published her story, that she confirmed that it was in fact pulled down. And it looks like while the ESA disabled the link to the particular uh, document that caused the trouble here, they didn't actually disable access to the document. Uh, so uh, apparently either archival material or the direct URL that you could get from the broken link uh, led to the document for at least a time after the publishing of this story. And that's what's led to some of the problems today. Uh, but that's really the background that I wanted to give is that I did uh, talk to Sophia electronically about this yesterday uh, before it broke. Uh, and so uh, when you look at that video, and I highly recommend checking it out, uh, I will link the tweet where the video uh, points to. Uh, in the description to this video. It's very short. It's three or four minutes long. But basically, she describes what happened. And I've also pulled up a VentureBeat article here. And it's from VentureBeat. It's from uh, journalist Jeff Grubb. He says, E3 organization leaks data for over 2,000 journalists and analysts. Uh, and this is as of uh, August 2nd, 2019, 11.52 p.m. So it's uh, just about 10 hours ago. 
says, if you attended the Electronic Entertainment Expo trade show this year with a media badge, it's possible that some of your sensitive data is now public. Each year, the Entertainment Software Association hands out hundreds of press badges to certain members of the press. To get one of these badges, I've given the organization my name, phone number, home address, and more each year for the last half decade. That info goes into a spreadsheet that the ESA hands out to its member companies. This makes it easier for those companies to invite press to E3 events and meetings. We're going to take a look at the privacy policy where it appears that the ESA has reserved the right to do that. Up until yesterday, however, that list was accessible to anyone who clicked on a button on the ESA website as first spotted by YouTube creator Sophia Narwitz. Since then, the ESA has removed the spreadsheet from its site, but it did not do that before other people were able to download it. At this point, it's impossible to tell who has the list. Uh, And that is really the context of what has happened so far. Uh, What Sophia discovered yesterday was on the E3 website, which hopefully I'll be able to pull up right now, uh, there is at the bottom here a list of links that you can go to from the E3 website. And on this list of links, I think it's gone at this point, was essentially a very innocuous heading uh, that said something along the lines of helpful links. And in that helpful links page, there was actually something else that said registered media list. Uh, And so they had collected all of the information of media folks that had submitted that information to get badges to attend E3, and they had essentially put it out for public consumption. Uh, Now, I have attended a lot of conferences in my day. They're not as exciting as E3 usually. If you're very excited about learning about civil procedure or the latest in software as a service contracting indemnification provisions and intellectual property licenses, well, I've got some conferences to recommend. Uh, But at those conferences, one of the perks, uh, one of the things that you potentially get as part of some of those is a list of attendees and sometimes their contact information, usually not home address and things like that, their email, potentially their phone number. And that's deemed to be part of what you're buying when you go to one of these conferences is you're supposed to be connecting, you're supposed to be networking, and you may potentially get a binder list of, of these other folks. And my best guess is that that's what the ESA thought that they were providing as this function. When it says registered media list, that there would be some value to knowing exactly what the registered media contacts uh, information was. Uh, but if you're following this on social media, if you're following this online, clearly the folks that gave this information, the folks that, like Jeff Grubb, put an article up on VentureBeat uh, yesterday, weren't aware of is that this was happening at all. And one of the primary things, if you take nothing else away from this video, is that there's a lot of intersecting, there's a lot of interlocking laws and contract law and other things that define what kind of liability and what kind of obligations as a company you have in respect of personally identifiable information and just data in general. But one of the primary kind of philosophies behind data protection and privacy that should govern the way you operate as an entity is that you have to get consent for what you want to do with data. Uh, And we're going to talk about the GDPR because a lot of people ask me about it on Twitter and on social media. We're going to talk about the California Privacy Act uh, a little bit because this does take place in California. And really, California has the most robust set of data protection laws right now in the United States. And so that's particularly applicable to what might be happening here in the future. But if you take nothing else away, know that in general... If you put something in a privacy policy, if you put something in the application process that says, this is what we're planning on doing with this, and you need to consent to that if you're going to be a part of this conference, then that's going to be cleansing in a lot of ways, as long as you're clear and you use good language and it's, and it's obvious that that's what you're doing. Uh, that the law, even in Europe, even in the GDPR, 
if you give this kind of broad description of what's going to happen to your information, such as being put on a list that might be publicly made available, then if you otherwise give that information, you sign up for the conference, most of the time, the law is going to say, okay, then you gave consent and consent is going to trump most things. That clearly didn't happen here. Uh, but I think based on this story, just in general, from a lawyer's perspective, not as legal advice, but just looking at this from the outside, this is so dumb from the Entertainment Software Association to actually have a link that says registered media list that led to an unencrypted, non-password locked list of media information like addresses and emails and phone numbers that I have to believe that at least someone at their organization thought they had permission to do this. And I think I might have some inkling as to why that is when we look at their privacy policy. But let's first take a look at how they reacted to this last night. Here is Jeff Grubb describes it. The ESA's reaction to the E3 data leak. This puts the ESA in a tough spot. I reached out to the organization and it provided the following statement from a spokesperson. ESA was made aware of a website vulnerability that led to the contact list of registered journalists attending E3 being made public. Okay, so let's stop right there. This wasn't a vulnerability. This wasn't a hack. This wasn't somebody entering into an encrypted or password locked site. This appears to be something that was actually pretty much signposted other than other than the fact that the language used was so innocuous that probably no one was inclined to click on helpful links. Uh, and that might be one of the reasons why this wasn't learned of earlier. Uh, but the ESA actually put this information up on a tab that says registered media list. So it's not a vulnerability unless they're going to try to claim that that registered media list was only intended for its members. Like Jeff says, that the list was generally uh, sent out to the various video game development and publishing companies so that they would know how to contact journalists. That doesn't appear to be the case because helpful links just went to anybody. Once notified, we immediately took steps to protect that data and shut down the site, which is no longer available. Again, as best I can tell, Sophia did notify them yesterday uh, or, or before that even, before she published her video. Uh, and it does appear that the ESA took down the link to that site. They didn't appear to take down the data on that site. And that's how other people found it once the information was made public. So at bare minimum, it doesn't appear that they actually took the necessary reasonable steps to remove the data from location on the internet. Uh, and that's compounded the problem that was originally a problem for the months from E3 till now, that apparently it was available on a public link. We regret this occurrence and have put measures in place to ensure it will not occur again. Uh, that's fine, uh, but it also calls to question exactly what we're talking about when we say not occur again. This is a statement that I look at and I say, this is a response to a breach. This is a response to somebody hacked our site and we're taking better steps to secure it. This is not a response to, oh, we actually put that up publicly because no one has a response to that. This is a very unusual state of affairs, a very unusual set of facts. And one of the things that really jumps out at me on this statement is they don't say anything about date or time. ESA was made aware of a website vulnerability. When? We think this was yesterday, but were you actually made aware of it a month ago, two months ago when E3 happened, I, when it was collected, whenever people had to register for badges in February and March? It doesn't say. And again, it makes sense because what are they even talking about here? They were made aware of a website that they created and put up. So 
This is a real problem for the ESA's communications. This is not going to be the last time you hear from the ESA on this. And we're going to talk about the many, many reasons why. But that's what jumped out at me from what happened last night. And again, you know, Sophia broke this story. She certainly tried to keep it uh, under wraps until the website was down. So the ESA actually taking it down and not doing what it was supposed to do compounded this issue because you did have a, a person that was prepared to break the story waiting for the information to be cut off before she did so. And then on the auspices that you took the necessary technological steps to do that, publish the story. And after that, things became much, much worse. And that's really on the ESA from my perspective, because they should have done things right back in February or whenever they collected this information. And then they should have done things right when they were notified by Sophia. And I believe she's on Twitter. She says she also mentioned it to some uh, contacts that she had at Vice that also followed up with the ESA. So they were getting a lot of this information yesterday. They obviously responded to it by pulling down the, the link, but they didn't respond to it by pulling down the actual data. And that's made things much, much worse. So without further ado from there, Let's dive into what the actual privacy policy of the Entertainment Software Association says. This is uh, findable from a link on the E3 website. It looks like it's properly uh, labeled so that you can find it easily, and it's got a little certificate badge, so that's all good. But this is what people actually agree to when they submit their information uh, to the ESA as part of going and applying for a badge to enter E3. It says, to further this commitment to privacy, we have adopted this online privacy policy to guide how we collect, store, and use the information you provide to us as a data controller. This privacy policy applies only to personal information collected on the websites where this privacy policy is posted. It is posted on the E3 website and does not apply to any other information collected by the ESA through any other means. That's interesting. That's broad, right? If you didn't go through the website, if you actually had it collected by email, does this not apply? There's a whole bunch of questions there. But I think for purposes of this conversation, we can assume that the entry pattern to get this badge information over to the ESA worked through the website, even if they linked out to somewhere else. And if we see, if we look at the next paragraph, it's really talking about if we collect information offline, then this doesn't apply. We're, we're aiming this privacy policy at online data, which makes sense because online data laws are different than other kinds of data laws, which generally reflect a more kind of breach of contract approach uh, to information management. We see what, that they actually call out when they say, what types of personal information do we collect about our guests? When you visit our websites, you may provide personal information to us directly. We may collect that personal information from our guests to register for our conferences or events. So we've got specifically, we're talking right now about the information that was actually collected to give you your E3 badge. This is information that you voluntarily gave us. It wasn't collected. It wasn't scanned. It's not cookies. It's not that kind of thing that you voluntarily gave us in order to enter our conference. And now we have it. The information may include name, email address, mailing address, and telephone number. That's the information that we see uh, on this leak that Sophia describes on the document that was apparently made available for months and months uh, at the ESA and E3 website. So that information is all covered under this policy. This is directly aimed at that policy. Then you have to get to the part of a privacy policy that says, hey, what can we do with that? It says, how is your personal information used and shared? We do not share, sell, or rent your personal information to third parties without your consent uh, or as described below. That's a typical kind of legal bit of language that says, hey, we're not going to do this without your consent or as we might otherwise mention in this document. You'll see that I've highlighted a number of areas here in yellow because they have a lot of those kinds of broadening bits of language that you might think you get the protection that you need, but you don't actually get the protection that you would want. 
Uh, it says information collected from those who voluntarily submit it to us. That's what we're talking about is used to provide services such as, and again, if you've followed virtual legality at all, you know, that's a little bit of legal language. It, it, it's very similar to including that suggests that this is an exclusive list with, without actually limiting it to an exclusive list. So they say we're going to provide services such as updates on special events, game news, and email announcements of interest to our users. But that's not limited. It just says, hey, we're going to provide services. It doesn't really aim it any more specifically than such as. So, hey, maybe as part of your application package buried on page 37 of something that you might otherwise have just thrown in the trash or put in a drawer, it said, we intend to make a list of the contact information you provide to us available to the public so that they can get uh, your attention if they've got an independent game that they're making or something along those lines. I don't know because I don't have a party to that application package. I would doubt that it's in there. Uh, but it's not impossible. And when they reserve these rights in the privacy policy, you start to get concerned. They then say, we may also use the personal information you provide to us for other quote unquote operational uses, which isn't otherwise defined. If they say, for example, which is the same thing as such as, we may use your information to send you administrative communications. In other words, they can use the information to operate their website, sure. But if they include in their mission statement that the operation of their website includes dissemination of your information because we think that would be valuable to the public at large or to the other members in our trade association, there's really no reason that they couldn't use that provision as the reason that they are able to do so, other than the fact that it provides terrible, terrible optics and terrible, terrible uh, ways of gathering consent from the people that might otherwise be affected. So... Continuing on here, it says you have the option to determine whether your name, city, and state will be displayed in our feed of video game industry advocates, and that we will never share your full mailing address with other users or with third parties. Great. Okay. Outside of the scope of this privacy policy. Oh, well, fair enough. Reading that all together, it looks like you're only going to share my city and state, and you won't share it with other people, but when you, when you qualify it by outside of the scope of this privacy policy, you essentially reserve the right to do it, as you say above, with tools and updates, operational uses, and who knows what else. They also go further and say, in the course of providing such services, these third parties, third parties that they might otherwise give access to your data, may have contact with your personal information, but they have agreed to securely store and maintain the personal information received from us. Well, that's good, except that that generally is only going to apply insofar as you protect the information. And if you're publishing the information publicly, that's going to create a problem for even enforcing rules against third parties that otherwise are probably signed up to guarantee that they're going to protect the information at least as well as you do. And then we come to the ultimate kicker. We come to the, the end of the line here. Business information. For practical reasons, we treat personal information submitted to us in a business capacity different from information we receive in a non-business capacity. Personal information submitted to us in a business capacity, and they have a such as again, resumes or event sponsorships may be shared with third parties depending on the nature of the inquiry. So we look at that and we say, is this business information? You're running a trade association conference. You're trying to connect journalists with members of your trade association for the purposes of getting uh, essentially marketing, but coverage of the products that they hope to sell in the coming year and years certainly sounds like a business relationship. Could the ESA have believed that as part of this provision, they had provided the necessary language to get consent for the sharing of your information, if in particular, 
you signed up for a media badge and gave the information to get approved for a media badge. Did the ESA think that they could share it under a provision like this? I suspect they did. And you see in that VentureBeat article from Jeff Grubb that he was aware of the fact that the list of registered journalists was being shown to the various members, to the Activisions, the Electronic Arts, the other developers and publishers of the world, which makes sense. You want the journalists' information to be available to these folks that are otherwise seeking coverage of their video games. But he didn't know that it was being made public in general, and I don't think anybody else did. So if the ESA thought this was enough, they're wrong just in kind of the general philosophy of the law, which is to say you have to go get consent, informed consent, much like medical rules, where the party that's giving you the data knows what you're going to do with it. And if it's opaque enough, if it's uh, essentially oblique here where you say, hey, no, I have the rights because of this bit of language, that no reasonable person could think that that meant that you were going to distribute it publicly to everyone, then you've got a problem under most data laws. And we're going to take a look at a bit of those data laws. Uh, going forward, just to the end of this document, it says, what kind of security measures do we take to safeguard your personal information? The security and confidentiality of your information is extremely important to us. We have implemented technical, administrative, and physical security measures to protect your personal information from unauthorized access. But again, if you make it public and you just allow it to be publicly uh, clicked on, it's probably not unauthorized. So you've got problems up and down this privacy policy. And the notes in this privacy policy are some of the things that I did talk with Sophia about uh, before she published her video yesterday. But it's only part of the story because, as I said, this privacy policy is last updated May of 2018. It's not a recent addition to their, to their policies, and it's also pretty opaque. It tends to uh, broadly define what it's going to do with the information while still reserving kind of uh, the generalized rights of only putting things as non-exclusive lists of such as and including and for example so they don't actually give you enough optically to really comply with most things that we're about to talk about in California or the GDPR. And this is going to be part of the discussion when, and I pretty much guarantee this is going to happen, various entities and parties involved with this leak wind up, uh, if not directly suing them, sending demand letters, asking for recompense, whatever it is that they might otherwise be doing. But I suspect you're probably going to see at least some legal action on this. Uh, with that being said, I also wanted to just kind of comment on the fact that the frequently asked questions for the E3 application does show how you are meant to go get a media badge. It requires a whole bunch of additional information, including uh, potentially uh, insurance cards, paycheck stubs, something that verifies that you're a member uh, of the video game media. Uh, and so not only did they release this information uh, to the public, that's all of your personal contact information, they also have all this other information that they could have wound up releasing as well. I don't have any reason to believe that this was part of what was released, uh, but it is a possibility and it is something to consider when you're thinking about it from the media's perspective uh, as a journalist in the video game industry. This company, this trade association, was silly enough to release all my personal information. Are they silly enough to release anything else that might otherwise be damaging to me? That's going to be part of the conversation when we talk about whether or not they should be liable, whether or not they should have uh, an issue with the various uh, adjudicative bodies that could otherwise cause them problems. Um, so I've pulled up here now. We're looking at the legislative code for California uh, and the Consumer Privacy Act of 2018, uh, which is really properly thought of as the Consumer Privacy Act of 2020. But it might be what you've read about. It might be one of the things 
that you have uh, heard about when talking about GDPR, which is the European privacy regulation, and how California has kind of jumped on board to be the first state really to enact something that is a GDPR equivalent. So I've pulled up some of the things here. I will tell you this is probably not applicable. Uh, we're going to see at the bottom here that most this becomes operative in 2020, January 1st, 2020. But it's worthwhile to see exactly what the California legislature was concerned about, uh, because I, I will also tell you, you are not limited if you've got a breach of contract like this, if you've got potential liabilities, you're not limited to only using the data protection laws if you're going to try to seek a claim against the ESA or potentially other parties that might have been involved in this leak, uh, including potentially individuals. You're not limited to only trying to describe what happened to you as a data breach. It could be a simple breach of contract. Uh, it could be something that falls under uh, exposure for identity theft, for criminal actions. It could be something that is just uh, already in existence about breach of your privacy policy, uh, which we're also going to see, which, which has been around in California earlier in this decade uh, and uh, also could potentially be implicated uh, by what has happened uh, at the ESA. But because this is what is in the, the public consciousness, because California has put this in place and it's going to be a big deal starting next year, I thought I would just take a look at why it's a big deal, what could happen if ESA did this, for instance, next year uh, and into the future. So the very first thing we're looking at here is definitions, which is what this actually applies to. And we're concerned with the word business, which is what the ESA might be. It says it's a sole proprietorship, that's a person, a partnership, a limited liability company, corporation, association, or other legal entity, so really everything you can think of, that is organized or operated for the profit or financial benefits of its shareholders or other owners. Now, that's a tricky one. The ESA is a trade association, so it has membership. It's not really set up uh, like an entity that otherwise is directly trying to get profits, but I strongly suspect that trade associations will wind up getting dragged in here uh, because they are operated for the purpose of increasing the, the economics for their membership, which is, in this case, the owners of that association. So while this language is maybe not directly aimed at something like the ESA, and while we can never quite know exactly how case law is going to interpret statutes really until we wind up having cases about them, I suspect the ESA would fall under the bucket of things that this should apply to. It does require them to have gross revenues in excess of $25 million uh, or buy, uh, uh, receive for the business's commercial purposes, sell or share for commercial purposes, the personal information of at least 50,000 or more consumers, households or devices, or derive 50% of its annual revenues from selling consumers' personal information. I don't know that this is actually going to wind up qualifying the ESA under this act. I strongly suspect the trade association itself doesn't make that much. Uh, but uh, that'll be something that would come up if this happened outside of this year. Going a little bit further down, because like all good statutes, it's written in a very long, legal-easy fashion. It says, as the primary civil remedy... Any consumer whose non-encrypted or non-redacted personal information, as defined above, is subject to an unauthorized access and exfiltration, theft, or disclosure as a result of the business's violation of the duty to implement and maintain reasonable security procedures and practices appropriate to the nature of the information to protect that information may institute a civil action for any of the following. Just breaking that down a second. It basically means, hey, if the business wound up getting you a data breach and it didn't take the reasonable security steps to try to prevent that. So we're not gonna blame them for the super hacker that comes in and defeats the highest level of encryption that they could possibly put on here, but we are gonna require them to have a reasonable amount of security protecting your stuff. If your stuff gets stolen and they didn't reasonably protect it, 
you can go try to get damages in an amount not less than $100 and not greater than $750 per incident or actual damages. Uh, so if it winds up getting stolen and you can show someone actually wound up draining your bank account, you could potentially go get that. Injunctive or declaratory relief, which would be the court stepping in to stop them or force them to do something for you to protect, to change the access to the data, something along those lines. And anything else the court might deem proper, which opens it up to anything, period. So we've got essentially suggestions here. But if the court deemed proper that it was $2,000 an incident, incident, that would be okay. Uh, Actions pursuant to this section may be brought by a consumer if prior to initiating the action, they give 30 days notice to the business. So this, this is built, the California Act starting in 2020 is built to require you to give notice to the business. And if they could cure it, they have to get those 30 days to cure it. Cure meaning here, fix it, right? And in this particular case, it would be interesting to see how a court would treat this because it's essentially unfixable once this once the database is out in the wild. So I would argue if I were representing somebody as part of this action that you really can't have any ability to cure what has happened. Uh, and so you should be able to you know, give them notice, sure, but sue immediately uh, for what it is that you're looking to get. Uh, and uh, that's really what this does. We see at the bottom here, uh, in 198, it'll be operative January 1st, 2020. And it did require a different act in California to be pulled down, which I believe is the case, but I'm can't tell you that I know exactly what has happened in the internal politics of the California state legislature, but I believe that has come down. And so I believe this will take effect uh, in January of next year. That's what it would look like if this happened next year. We've got here the baseline of the Privacy Act, uh, the, the Privacy Act that governs the, the need in California to have a privacy policy. And this was put into place years and years and years ago. Uh, but it was designed to basically say you need to have a conspicuous privacy policy and then you need to comply with that conspicuous privacy policy. So it says an operator of a commercial website or online service that collects personally identifiable information through the Internet about individual consumers residing in California who use or visit its commercial website or online service shall conspicuously post its privacy policy on its website. And then you will be held in violation of that obligation if you fail to comply with it, if you don't put a privacy policy on your website, or if you breach your own privacy policy as you described it. And that breach can happen knowingly and willfully, you're a bad actor, or it can even happen negligently as long as it was material. In this case, we have no problem assessing that this was a material breach, that the actual information that was released was important to the people that were otherwise holding it. We've got home addresses, we've got cell phone numbers. It was material. So even if this was negligent, it's potentially a problem. Now you heard above, I referenced the fact that this applies to California residents. There are uh, in all likelihood a number of California residents on the journalist list, but even outside of that, I'm using the California law because it is the the broadest, it is the most specific, but a lot of states have adopted various privacy laws. Uh, Now, the actual event took place in California, so that might be a factor as well. It all really depends on what kind of jurisdiction you're trying to establish at the court level, and it's going to be a conversation for any individual, the establishment of any class, potentially, if you're looking to try to make a federal claim, which in all likelihood would be undertaken in California in any event. Uh, But the reason I brought this law up is because it is so specific. And you see here, that's really the whole of the law. It says, if you violate your privacy policy, it's a violation of this act. And you look at that and you say, well, what does that mean? And you go further in this code, you don't find anything else. There's no enforcement provision in the California code for this particular item. 
And as it turns out, as we've discussed in virtual legality before, what they do for kind of generalized breaches of their corporation's code, of their business profession's code, is they say that it is essentially unfair. They say under their 17200, as used in this chapter, unfair competition shall mean and include any unlawful business act. Uh, so that's, I shortened it there for you. But if you violate this law, you're otherwise also liable under this section. And this is where we apply the very bad things. It says any person who engages, has engaged, or proposes to engage in unfair competition shall be liable for a civil penalty not to exceed $2,500 for each violation. And actually counting up the violations here would be something that would be part of any story. Whether a violation is every time somebody accessed it, whether a violation is every time somebody accessed it multiplied by the number of people on the list. Obviously, if you're going to have 2,000 plus people on that list, you've got real potential problems for the amount of money that could be at play here. Uh, and certainly that's going to be something that is discussed among the halls of these various companies that did have a number of people have their information released. Some of the names that came up in that VentureBeat article and in Sophia's uh, video are places like Goldman Sachs and, and, and other essentially video game industry adjacent, adjacent folks that do have uh, high-powered lawyers on retainer, that do have the capacity to go and make trouble for this trade association. Uh, and so I, I'm looking at this and saying, yeah, you made that comment that you tried to fix it, but wow, you've got a long way to go, and this is going to be a significant problem. And that's just California. A number of people got on my social media and asked me about the elephant in the room, which is the General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR, which governs Europeans. Uh, and frankly, the GDPR is new enough, just like we talked about with respect to the California Act, that it's a little bit unclear exactly what would happen under this. We see the territorial scope of the GDPR. This regulation applies to the processing of personal data of data subjects who are in the union by a controller or processor not established in the union where the processing activities are related to the offering of goods or services, irrespective of whether a payment of the data subject is required to such data subjects in the union or the monitoring of their behavior as far as their behavior takes place within the union. So the union is the EU, the European Union. We look at that and we say, all right, well, in this case, we're talking about information that was about providing a service, if anything, in the state of California. So while Europeans might be implicated, they would have an initial hurdle to cross, which is this is designed to not necessarily reach every single business activity on the face of the earth, but is designed to protect Europeans that are operating within Europe. Uh, and that can mean, as you probably know, if you follow any of these things in American media, that can mean, especially if you're selling to Europe and you don't have an office there, that you still need to worry about this. Because if you sell into Europe and they buy something in Europe, then you have to be GDPR compliant. But what we're talking about here is collecting information for the purpose of issuing you a badge that you can only use in California and you will be in California when you use it. And so... It probably doesn't apply, but like most things, this is one of those areas where this is a big enough deal that it wouldn't surprise me if somebody tries to pursue an action. It wouldn't surprise me if the European Union administrator says this is a bad thing and you need to do something to fix it, even if their authority isn't fully exactly aimed at what's happening here. But it's important to kind of break these things down and say, okay, two such data subjects in the union, as we see in 2A there, the in the union probably means this isn't intended to apply, 
but it's not 100% clear. So we do need to kind of do a GDPR analysis. We got to look at what this is. And it's talking about processing. It says processing shall be lawful only if and to the extent that at least one of the following applies. The data subject has given consent to the processing of his or her personal data for one or more specific purposes. And then the rest of this list is mostly focused on it was necessary to do what you were going to do for them. We're going to interpret the fact that somebody has asked you to process your data as permission. Uh, it, so if you need to do it to perform whatever service has been asked of you, then you don't necessarily need a separate kind of consent document. But that's not really what we're looking at here. Nobody honestly thinks that in order to attend E3, the ESA was required to issue a fully public table of the various contact information for the journalists that might be attending. And so we're looking at the consent question. When we get there, we see a couple of definitions. We see that the data subject is the, personal, is the person, and we also see that processing includes collection and dissemination or otherwise making available. So we want to be clear that this does apply. We are talking about the processing of information for a data subject. And did they give their consent? It says where processing is based on consent, the controller shall be able to demonstrate that the data subject has consented to processing of his or her personal data. That's a problem just in the outset. That says that the ESA needs to be able to show the administrator of the GDPR that these folks knew that they were consenting to this activity. Based on the Twitter reactions, based on social media, based on everything else that we're seeing across the internet, at least as presented to us today, it seems patently evident that these folks were not aware that this is one of the things their data was going to be used for. Going further, if the data's subject consent is given in the context of a written declaration. So if you put the consent in one of these terms and conditions documents, here's what has to happen, which also concerns other matters. The request for consent shall be presented in a manner which is clearly distinguishable from the other matters in an intelligible and easily accessible form using clear and plain language. Said another way, hey, look, we're not going to hold you responsible for the dumb people. Even if they're complaining on Twitter, if you separated everything out in a box and said, hey, when you give us this information, we're going to make this publicly available on our website and you put it in bold and they check the box and they sign the document. Okay, even if they're complaining later, we're going to look at this and say, you did all you could. You, you really asked for consent. You made it clear. You blocked it out. Uh, and so we're not going to hold you potentially liable for this. In this case, I don't know that there's any evidence that they did ask for that consent outside of the kind of ambiguous privacy policy language that we already talked about. And that's creating a major, major problem. So major, in fact, that if the GDPR were held to apply to them, it's got major ramifications. So we're now looking at the remedies section of the GDPR. It says infringements of the following provisions, which bakes in provision six, which is what we're talking about, processing of data. Infringements of these provisions will be subject to administrative fines up to 20 million euros or up to 4% of the total worldwide annual turnover of the preceding financial year, whichever is higher. So 20 million minimum, uh, however, the language here is administrative fines up to. So just like the language we saw in the California Act, there's a wide, wide berth of discretion given to the GDPR administrator to determine what makes sense to impose on the company that, that this happened to. Um, so if the GDPR were to apply here, the administrator could say, okay, you're a smallish trade association, so we don't need to apply the full-on penalty. However, 
this was pretty, pretty stupid, and we need to make sure to make an example of you. So that would rule in favor of a higher penalty. And then further, part of the story that I haven't seen discussed anywhere online is that the video game industry is somewhat vilified across various places across the world, really, in both the United States, but especially in Europe, where you've had the loot box discussion. You've had Belgium talk about the fact that they should be banned. You've had recently United Kingdom decisions determining that loot boxes and FIFA packs aren't gambling, but under the auspices that, hey, maybe that's a problem and we need to look at our gambling laws. You then have Rockstar having an online gaming casino that has one tiny step uh, between actually formally gambling cash and not gambling cash that has raised a number of eyebrows across the world. And so into that steps the trade association that acts on this industry's behalf and says, oops, <laughs> we accidentally released the personally identifiable information of 2,000 plus people. And in that context, it wouldn't surprise me if California if the European Union, if various other states across the United States, heck, maybe other countries looked at this and said, no, we need to do more than a slap on the wrist here because this industry is getting out of control. Now, I don't necessarily agree with that analysis. As a lawyer, I don't have to agree with the analysis I give and the, and the advice I give to my clients, but I think it's something to take note of that this happened at a bad time, that the ESA, as the advocate for the industry, is not in a position to fight against a lot of the things that are going to be said about them and about video games. And this has made things much, much worse. That all being said, the last question that was asked of me on my social media was, could people individually sue under the GDPR for this? And the answer that was thrown around was no. And I don't pretend to be a European lawyer. So this is just my analysis of actually looking at what's in the GDPR and seeing what happened. So if somebody else disagrees with this, feel free to add it to the comments. But I look at provision article 79 here, and it says, without prejudice to any available administrative or, no, or non-judicial remedy. So without prejudice to the fact that we can implement fines, we can ask you to do things, we can put in injunctions, all that stuff that we otherwise skip because the GDPR is really, really long. Each data subject, each person, shall have the right to an effective judicial remedy where he or she considers that his or her rights under this regulation have been infringed as a result of the processing of his or her personal data in noncompliance with this regulation. Again, I'm a humble Michigan lawyer. I'm an American. I'm not a European. I look at this and say, I don't know what this article means if it doesn't mean you can sue if you're unhappy with the fees that we put forth or if you're unhappy with anything else that we're doing, that you have a personal judicial remedy that will be made available to you if you don't think that your information was processed correctly. That's how I read that article. And somebody else can jump into my comments. They can otherwise talk to me online about why that's wrong or a misinterpretation of what this says. But at least looking at it right now, a lot of people have asked me whether you can sue under the GDPR. It certainly looks to me like you can based on Article 79. Uh, and that's all a long way of saying, I think that the Entertainment Software Association is in a bit of trouble on this. Uh, and that is uh, going to be a problem for a lot of people. And certainly the Entertainment Software Association is perhaps not in as much trouble as some of the folks that appear on that list. Uh, video gaming has long been a somewhat polarizing hobby. Uh, it's been years and years and years now where various factions across the industry 
have looked towards the quote-unquote other side, whether that's on politics, whether that's just on genre, uh, whether that's on even something more minute than that, look to the other side as a something that they should complain about, that they should make their lives difficult and sometimes worse. And so you look at this information being out there, and my sincere hope is that in applying for these badges that most folks wound up putting their business address, potentially their business phone number, uh, and if that is the case, I think that there could be potentially limited ramifications uh, for this leak. But I strongly suspect at least some of the names and other information that appear on those documents you're looking at are home addresses, uh, cell phone numbers, potentially home landlines, and other personal information that you wouldn't have expected to get out there. And as much as I wish it weren't so, there are certainly bad actors on the internet, and they're going to do some things to these people. And certainly, the Entertainment Software Association maybe didn't mean to do anything bad, didn't mean to do anything untowards. And heck, as I said at the start of this video, I think it likely that they thought they had permission to do this thing. I don't know how you otherwise label something registered media list on a publicly accessible site uh, on helpful links uh, if you don't think you have permission. But I also strongly suspect, based on the reactions on social media, based on the actual language of the privacy policy, based on the laws in California and elsewhere, including the European Union, which may or may not apply, and again, I lean towards no there, that they didn't have that permission. They didn't have those rights to distribute the information. Everybody's surprised that they did so. And that's going to be a very, very bad day for the ESA. I strongly suspect there will be legal action. Uh, it might be behind the scenes. Uh, you might have some big players come up, Goldman Sachs, whoever else might be a big player that had their information released and go get a settlement out of the ESA. And that might come with an NDA and you might not ever hear about it again. Uh, but it depends on a lot of things. It depends on what kind of money they might be willing to give up, what kind of other steps they might be otherwise willing to take, and what kind of money they have. Uh, one of the things that we talk about a lot in virtual legality, we've talked about with the Easy Allies and Help Us Out Hogan elsewhere, is that a lot of the law is based on where the pockets are, where the money is. Uh, and I don't know what the ESA's financial situation is right now. Uh, part of that question is the fact that the membership of the ESA certainly makes a lot of money, but generally speaking, they don't fund the trade association to have an exorbitant amount of money, or at least most industries don't. So that'll be an open question as to what happens from here, but it's certainly one worth following. And if you went all the way in this video with me in virtual legality, I very much thank you. Uh, it's been uh, quite an interesting story to follow. I wish virtual legality didn't have to deal with so many of these kinds of bad stories, and we had a few more good and happy stories to talk about. Uh, uh, unfortunately, I do think that this is an important thing to share, an important thing to discuss. If you do have questions, you know, feel free to leave comments in the, uh, the comments to this video. Uh, I try to answer as much as I can, obviously, without going too far into giving any kind of legal advice in this educational and informational environment. And share it around if you think it's interesting, if you think other people might be interested in it. I can't get everywhere. I can't get to NeoGAF and Reset Era and Reddit and wherever else people might be discussing this on the regular. But I do think that it is an important conversation to have. And I do strongly suspect that the ESA will be facing some kind of legal sanction uh, and or lawsuit in the near future. Uh, so that's been Virtual Legality Today. If you like this video, please like, please subscribe to the channel. We're talking about these kinds of things all the time. Yesterday, we just talked about exclusivity messaging with respect to Ooblets and Ninja on Mixer. We talked about Colin Moriarty and PAX West, and we talk about all manner of things. You heard me reference gambling and the way that the UK has treated the loot box issue. We talked about that basically all of last week. 
including talking about Rockstar's online casino. So if you like this stuff, I think there's a lot to like on this channel, and I, I highly uh, recommend sharing it around to anybody else you think might otherwise like it. If you caught this on a podcast in podcast format, thank you so much for listening. And if you could review it on that podcast service that you're listening to it on, or otherwise leave a comment if available, I absolutely appreciate that as well. Otherwise, thanks for watching, thanks for listening, and I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality.